and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. We are going to do something a little different for the next few weeks here at the Dolby Institute podcast. We are leaving the world of film and television and venturing into the world of video games. As I'm sure many of you know, there is some incredible work being done with sound and music for gaming. And some new titles are even available in Dolby Atmos. So we've decided to team up with my colleagues in the gaming department here at Dolby to cover some of the groundbreaking work being done in this sector. For this episode, we have the sound and music team from Eidos Montreal, who just released the epic new video game, Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. If you haven't played it yet, it is spectacular, massive, and uh, has a surprisingly emotional story that really rewards players for their hours of gameplay. But it was not an easy endeavor to bring such a monster of a project to life, especially in the middle of a pandemic. So let's find out how they did it. I'm gonna turn this over now to Andy Vaughn from Dolby Game Developer Relations for his discussion with the team behind this thrilling new game. Take it away, Andy. Hello, everybody. This is Andy from Dolby's Game Developer Relations Group, and I'm really pleased to have the folks behind Guardians of the Galaxy with me today. Meet the audio team from Eidos Montreal. Thanks, Andy. I'm Steve Shipkowski. I was the senior audio director on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy game. I've been with Eidos Montreal for about 15 years now. This is my third AAA title with the company. And the guy who's been beside me on this ride for the last 15 years, my technical audio director, J.S. Leblanc. So I'm Jean-Sébastien Leblanc, uh, technical di- audio director at uh, IDOS Montreal. I have also been uh, there for uh, 14, 15 years. This is the third project we've delivered together. My name is Mike Bott. I'm senior sound designer uh, for Guardians of the Galaxy. I was at IDOS for about seven years and did two projects with those two guys and one other project. I'm Richard Jakes and I'm the composer for Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, it's my first project working with Eidos Montreal. It's been a great ride, uh, and I've been working in games for about 27 years. Gentlemen, thanks for joining. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm really excited to have you here, and you're just done getting a game in the can and out into the world. And I got to say, you must be proud. I hope you're proud. The game's massive. Um, in the initial reviews, I read a reviewer who said he was moved to tears by the dialogue in the game, and as a result, I find myself working through this game, exploring every corner and every chunk of dialogue I can find, and uh, I'm just. I've really been enjoying it an awful lot. This game is giant. Um, it's, you know, huge, and it's giant in a couple of dimensions, too. I mean, the scope and the scale is just out of control and massive. And I guess I'd just start off and say, how are you able to wrangle this many elements of audio in a game? Yeah, it's uh, it's quite an undertaking, and it's it, it all happens through a team, right? Through teamwork and through different people. So step one is getting the uh, the composer and you know boy did we ever hit that one out of the park so we grabbed our friend here richard and you know he proceeded to go off and spend the next few years writing over five hours of music and it's not just the writing you know like he's also coordinating as i learned you know as we were really in the in the trenches you know it's like richard would be writing and then he's like okay i gotta go and i know it's already like 10 o'clock at his time but he's like I got to go because I got to approve like, you know, sheets for tomorrow for the recording. And I got to make sure printing like he's got an army behind him. And having a guy like Rich driving all of that made my life a lot easier. And and knowing that, you know, I was in good hands. Second thing was for the licensed music. I mean, we've got 31 licensed tracks. And again, that's, you know, uncharted waters for me. So through uh, some mutual references i was um re- referenced to randy eckhart of eckhart consulting who did all of the he cut his teeth on all of the guitar hero games so i knew he knew how to get licensed music and that was sort of uh step two then there's also we added the the 10 songs from the star lord album that i wrote with johan boudreau and then there's the whole scope of the game of 16 chapters of sound design and different maps and environments. So it is a beast. I think it's one of those things that at the beginning of the game, if somebody said to me, okay, you need to deliver all this, I would have been like, are you crazy? Like, there's no way that's happening. 
But when you go at it inch at a time, inch at a time, and everything's just here and you're just moving, I always use that analogy of it's almost like digging a trench in a desert for three years and you stick your head up and you see that there's this trail going for miles and you're like, how the hell did that get built? And it's like, well, you did it with a spoon every day for the last three years, you know? So big undertaking, but I think we could all agree here in the room that we wanted to make this game big. We wanted it to feel epic. We wanted it to have that that sort of comic book jumping out of the pages, that Saturday matinee movie that you've been waiting for, all of the above. JS, do you have anything to add there? I mean, it seems like uh, digging the trench with a spoon might become the purview of the technical director. And <laughs> <It was, laughs> is that the right metaphor? It was, uh, yeah, it's it is a good one. Uh, I mean, it's been a rough year and a half to say the least. Like the past year and a half was very. Uh, I mean, there there's a lot of work involved. I don't think we've ever completely lost control, which felt no. It good. was it was challenging, but. We we managed uh, to keep our heads just above the water for the whole time. Barely, but yeah. Um and you know, the the game this the game was scoped out to be much shorter at the beginning. Um, you know, and then the first chapter became three chapters and then twelve chapters became sixteen chapters, you know. Uh the team the size of the team sort of stayed the same, but the scope not doubled, but almost. I'm happy and I'm surprised, you know, of what we were capable of delivering with, with the amount of people that were involved. We got this. Well, you know, sticking with the the out of control thing, this past couple of years have thrown a lot of out of control at all of us. And I know this is a topic we're all pretty tired of talking about, but I think there's some interesting nuggets about how you guys worked while in the, you know in the middle of this this lockdown world that we're in right now. Like, um, I hear that you traveled to do final bits of the, of the mix, and that you had to do some remote recording. Can you tell me a little bit about your trip to London? Well, the trip to London was great. I'll, I'll actually I'll let I'll let Rich talk a bit about the recording, and then we'll jump in as we had to integrate it all. And I can give you a bit of a, a visibility on how how tight the, the we were a well oiled synchronized machine. But Rich had the biggest challenge because to be to be honest, um, had he not overcame those challenges, we wouldn't have had anything to mix. So so I, I think the credit goes to him first. And he he brought us the tools that we were able to mix. Yeah, I mean, for for everyone, the pandemic threw up a, a huge amount of curveballs, and um, definitely for actually getting the score recorded. Um, you know, trying to get an eleven day block booking at Abbey Road, the, you know, the busiest studio in the world, is not easy anyway. But going back sort of eighteen months ago, when we were actually locking down the dates, um, the studios were closed. They they were just completely closed. So we thought, well, how on earth are we going to do this? I was planning to do some of the recordings in in Europe and the rest of them, most of them in London, but a few in uh, in Europe. So that was completely out of the question with regard to travel and um, quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I needed to find a way where, where we knew we could um, deliver this, regardless of pandemic, regardless of lockdowns or any other restrictions that may or may not come in, in force. Um, so after a great many uh, discussions with my um, mix engineer, Jake Jackson, um, I decided that the um, some of the string recordings we actually did remotely in the UK. So there were people kind of all over the country, really, different ensembles, smaller ensembles that we would then glue together to give the sound of a 50-piece string section, which is what I would normally have and normally expect. But, you know, in Abbey Road, we couldn't even get more than 20 in, in Studio 2 because of social distancing. Um, so that was all happening sort of remotely uh, from about March uh, this year, uh, 2021. And then as the restrictions managed to lift, we did get 11 days recording all the brass and the choir at Abbey Road um, and then glued it together, mixed it here in my studio in London. Um, and it sounds, you know, no one could, could even tell, even the mastering engineer, uh, Simon Gibson from Abbey Road, who, who mastered the, uh, the album, he couldn't even tell how we did it. And it's normally those people that, that would be able to tell. So uh, it was, um, you know, slightly unusual way of doing it, but it's all about the results for me. And I knew that we would have the best players available because there, was, you know, there wasn't many gigs happening, no concerts, no recording sessions um, in studio. So we got some absolutely outstanding musicians and I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled with the results. 
you know, so you've, you've talked about music a couple of times. You talked about licensed tracks. You talked about the Star-Lord album. There's a lot of themes going on here, and there's a lot going on just in the music. Like, I think a, a chunk of the, the scale and the space of this game is music. Um, all this has to play together, and I know that licensing music can be a difficult you know, operation. That's an exacting process, and it needs to be produced correctly. Along with everything else going on in the, in the, in the musical scores of this game, how do you get those three things to play together? Uh, through a lot of trial and error, I guess. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, and be like, oh, well, you know, we, we've taken high meetings with Brandy and planned all this out. It's more like, you know, iterate, iterate, iterate until we find something that we're like, hey, you know, and for me, I've always been very big on just gut reaction. And when I see something like I know five seconds, if it's right for me. You know, it doesn't mean it's right for everyone, but for me, I'm willing to kind of like die on that sword. Like a good example is like, you know, when we were getting towards the end of the game and the end of the game came together, like most games very late, you know, and just, just the, um, so what I'm looking for, but the sequence of like, okay, and then we're going to get to this shot. And then from there, it goes to here and from there to here. So anyway, we got to the end of the game and there's a scene where Peter has this uh, battle of wits sort of with himself in the mirror. And originally in my head, I was thinking, ah, you know, I'll probably look for a, a Star-Lord song to kind of bang in there. But then one day I'm, I'm going through it and I'm with JS and JS is like, yeah, I, I dropped the, uh, the Rick Roll uh, in there uh, for now, you know. And, I, and I, as soon as I played it, I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's it. That's staying. That's right. What you, that's perfect. And then I start thinking and I'm like, what an even better thing is to force everybody to play through the whole game before they get that Rick roll at moment. So I thought it was a win on a bunch of things, but again, you know, it's through iteration and, and, you know, and I see what JS did and I'm like, that's great. I'm like, it works so well there. And, and I couldn't picture it any other way. I think, it, I think it might've been a fluke. I think it was just the sequence in which the music was playing in the previous uh, scene. And just the follow-up song was Rick Astley, and it just played, and it always played the same. And we we ended up doing it that way for real, and not not it being a fluke, but but yeah, it did feel good in the end. A lot of credit goes to um, to Rich, and probably a bit to us on the planning side. Whereas we were really trying to, um, I think we only changed one track, which was the the opening, but we were always trying to make sure if we decided to use a licensed track here, well, then it wasn't going to change because Rich is building his tracks going in, coming out with that key and, you know, so that it's, you know, harmonically working properly. So once that's sort of in the concrete, we kind of like to treat it as concrete and not go back and be like, hey, Rich, like I said, I did it once and it was more... Uh, uh, request from the creative director when we um, when you start the game it used to be space riders that would blend in as you're coming in on the farmhouse and zero to hero was the last song that Yoan and I recorded and it came in like pretty late and pretty hot and then all of a sudden you know everybody heard zero to hero and they're like oh we want zero to hero to be the song that we're fading in and I was like well let's hope it's in the same key and of course it wasn't so I was like uh, rich you know sorry we actually paid a lot of attention to make sure all the three three main musical elements work together so right from the beginning steve and i um you know we we knew there was going to be licensed tracks we knew there was going to be the star lord album and it was my job to make a seamless transition between just going in and out of score or tracks or star lord album um, and as Steve said, yeah, the first opening, I just had to transpose that into a different key to make sure it, it fitted um, with the new uh, selected Starlord track. But I think in a lot of the other parts of the game, especially in coming in and out of cinematic sequences, um, we, we really try to make them so smooth so that you know because you could you could have a really jarring sound with loads of different kind of you know loads of different styles of music in the licensed track i mean although they're, although they're 80s there's, there's pop there's metal there's all sorts of things um and i need to make sure that that worked with the score so 
for example, there's one scene that takes place in Peter's house. Um, and in the background on the radio, there is um, Tears for Fears, everyone wants to rule the world playing. And as he goes up the stairs into uh, his mum's bedroom, the, the track sort of fades out. And I echo the chorus just with a solo French horn so that it goes seamlessly into the cutscene. Things like that um, to make a really seamless experience. And um, yeah, it was really, really great to be able to do that. But, um, you know, we, I think we're really happy with the way it came out because it could have it could have sounded a bit messy, but I'm um, delighted with the results. I'll give a shout out to JS as well because he was constantly, um, I'd almost say like the keeper of the uh, presentation is everything flame, you know, and he was really, you know, if something wasn't smooth, he would call it out and he would be on it and he'd be sort of saying, okay, like what if we, there was a right after that, one of the first licensed tracks transitions is at the end of chapter one with Iran. And I know JS worked really hard to sort of make that transition, especially like it's the beginning of the game. Like you don't want to be showing anything ugly and turning people off or giving them a reason to take the, the game out of the console. So you really want to make sure like the first three, four hours are as seamless and smooth as possible. And he worked really hard to get that whole transition inside the ship. And please don't be Novacore. Please don't be Nova. And like we're going from a licensed track to a score back into a licensed track. And it all flows seamlessly. And like I said, a big part of that credit goes to him and the work he was doing behind the scenes to make it all. And he'd poke me and he'd be like, ah, oh, can, can we get like a little piece here? Cause it'll mask this. And, and I would, I'd just be like, you know, I've got 500 fires going behind me and I'm like, yeah, yeah, let me grab that fire and add it. And I won't focus on it. I just know what you're asking for is going to be right. So we'll just do it. And then I'd see it in the game and I was like, wow, that works so well. So yeah, he, he worked really hard to make sure all those tracks were constantly seamlessly uh, working well. And if they weren't, he was the first one to call it out and get us to fix it. Awesome. Hey, so um, this has just popped into my head, but I'm curious, was there a moment when the first person got Rick rolled on the team and did that turn into like a running prank or was it just something that went by and you kept working? If somebody did, I didn't hear about it for me uh, again, you know, like we're all working at home. I think people were just super ecstatic to hear that we got that track. And for me, it was a no brainer. Like that's one of the most, you know, iconic songs of that decade. So I was like, we definitely got to have it. Um, so I don't know of anybody getting, getting Rick rolled or whatever, but I know people were very, very ecstatic to hear that we had obtained the rights for that song. Early in the, uh, the prototype process, uh, the Rick Astley song was one of the two huddle songs available. And then <clears throat> it was sort of taken out. And the, the first one was always sort of pre-established. And the one at the end made it through, but it was quite late in the process. Like it was, it probably made it there late August. Uh, yeah, maybe late July, August. And it's funny, like you were asking earlier about the mix, Andy. Like, so Rich did his recording just to show you, you know, how we like to do things and make things kind of tight and exciting. <laughs> Rich finished his recording. Rich, correct me. I think it was June 30th, somewhere around there. Correct. And then Rich had a month to deliver the mixed, all of that. He had to mix it all with his uh, mixer, Jake. And he had to get all of that to us by the end of July. As we were leaving to go to England, uh, we went to um, the amazing Molinaire facilities in Soho. Uh, I can't say enough about how well they treated us. Great, great staff, great facility. I mean, again, I can't say there's there's not enough words in the dictionary on the positive to put at them because they treated us like gold. Um, and honestly, going down to England, you know, I think JS and I knew we had a lot of pressure on our backs. We knew we had to go there and quarantine for five days before we could even work. And then we had to build our work plan. And our work plan was quickly flushed down the toilet on day five, because we, we were, we were sort of under the uh, assumption that we were, um, we had paid for an expediated test so that we could get out on day five. So we assumed that we would expediated, meaning we go in and test at nine and probably by nine, uh, noon or one, we have the results, but that's sort of our assumption of expediated. And it came in more like five, six o'clock, the end of the day. So we, we lost one whole day to mix. That was our start of the, the mix process. So needless to say, we knew we had to pick up, uh, we had to make up some serious time. And, and to be fair, the reason we went down there is because, um, you know, 
we only get to ship a game every four or five years and the technology jumps like crazy every four or five years. So, I mean, like first game Jess and I did human revolution was like just stereo mankind divided was sort of a 5.1, but it was more or less the engine doing the, the sort of surround work for you. Um, Jess, you can correct me. Did we do cutscenes in, in 5.1 or was it all, it was stereo, right? It was just, yeah. We probably had like quad beds, but it was it was essentially stereo. Yeah, but this game we knew we were going for a much bigger production, and it was going to be like right up from like you know Atmos and multi-dimensional right down to TV. That's a lot of lot of skew not skews, but a lot of different uh, mediums you have to test on. You know, like from from a full Atmos kit down to headphones. So, and, you know, again, it's not like we do this every day. So I thought it would be really advantageous for us um, to sort of align ourselves with somebody who does do this for a living and has that experience who could help us. Um, so we went to Molinaire and uh, they hooked us up with uh, Mr. Richard Prike, who we just, you can see by Jess smiling, we fell in love with him. So we really, we really enjoyed, you can see, like I said, like, I honestly, I really feel like all the work, I, I don't want to diminish the work we put in because when I say this, it feels like it does and it's not meant to, but it's just saying that the importance of the mix, I can't stress enough. And I really feel that our game sort of found its identity, found its legs when we went to London, because now JS and I were, I mean, we both, you know, we both have families and kids and, and homes we got to take care of. But over there, it was like, you know, 15 hours a day of just focusing on on this with no interruptions. And that's all we talked about. And that's all we did. And it was amazing that Richard's in London, you know, like we had one chapter that when we played it and mixed it, we were sort of like, you know, and again, you know, things are, are going at super hyper fast speed. So I was looking at the map and I was like, I had, I had sort of helped design like how the music should go in. But then when JS and I reviewed it, we were both sort of like, man, there's not a lot of breathing room. Like there's just, you know, we're towards the end of the game. So it's a lot of combat. And um, it just felt like we were kind of assaulting the player with a sledgehammer sonically, you know? So Funny enough, like, you know, on the spot, we sat late, we had a beer and we, we said, okay, well, what's a quick way to get where we want? We came up with a plan. Two days later, Richard comes and meets me at my hotel. JS is at the, and the great thing too, is our hotel was like, I think a two minute walk to the studio. So it made, you know, back and forth very easy. So JS went to the studio, start preparing for the day. Richard comes down from his studio, meets me at the hotel. We sit in my room on a laptop we replan out the music and what's needed to make that chapter kind of work better. And within a week, and then we had one of our sound designers, um, uh, Manu Denel, who did all the music integration for that chapter. And then when we played it, it was like night and day. Like, it was just amazing that we came in with like a sort of strike team, like, you know, we need to do this. Okay, let's do it. Rich, we need to do this. We need these pieces to do it. Okay, I'll do it. Okay, we got the pieces. Give it to Manu. Okay, I'll integrate it tonight. Tomorrow we play it and we're like, it's working. It's it's great, you know? And it, it could have gone either way, you know? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was really interesting because in a game like Guardians of the Galaxy, we, you know, we wanted to have this big epic sound, but at the same time, as a gamer myself, I'm not a big fan of, you know, just sticking music in and setting it at the whatever volume it is and that's it you know it's a really really dynamic score and it's treated as such so you know when i'm playing it the, you know the big moments are big and then the underscore is, is exactly where it should be and that makes such a huge difference even within a track or within a cutscene, the dynamics are all there and i think that makes a huge difference because we actually mixed all the music in 7.1 um, and we actually had multiple 7.1 stems and we had this insanely complicated pro tool session um, but actually it made a difference when it went into the game because you can really hear all the dynamics in the music and then within each track it was treated dynamically whether it's a cinematic or a piece of in-game music and that's why I was so thrilled to, you know, I mean you can you can hear absolutely everything, pinpoint accuracy and all the sound design and huge amounts of dialogue and um, yeah it was really really cool for me to just go in and, and hear that.
as a sound designer, we always, before we just like throw as much stuff in as we can. And so it's hard for us, you know, that's all we're thinking about. But I do know that like, cause I wasn't around, I think I left before you guys went to the mix. And when I came back and played it afterwards, I was very, you could tell that it was a night and day because before it was just kind of just like noisy and things weren't very focused and the moments weren't being like, the specific moments aren't being exactly focused on. And like, I think that must've taken so much work. And the fact that it sounds comprehensible at all, it's just, I find it very impressive. So, One thing that um, <clears throat> Richard, the mixer, or Richard uh, helped a lot with was uh, all the dynamics. Because when we came in, we had a very good level. We weren't too hot. We weren't too loud. We weren't not loud enough because that never really happens. So we weren't too loud. We were just correct, but we would never actually move up and then come back down and then move up. And he was just first thing he says to me uh, when we start. Oh, I like that string intro. It's very nice. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, can we have it up six DB? And I'm like, whoa, 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 buddy. I'm yes. In my mind, absolutely not. And, uh, and I'm on the couch and I'm like, yes. and, I'm, and I'm like, no way. And then I put it up. And then uh, I'm like, okay, my, maybe it's okay. And then he just kept going. Like, yeah, yeah, th that up five, up five, five. It was always five, 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 another five. And I was like, whoa, 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 calm down. But it was, uh, it was good. And he was bold. And he always said, like he said it many times, it's like, be bold or don't go for it, you know? And, and uh, um he was right in the end. I, I had my doubts at the beginning. I was like, whoa. And after a couple of days, I was like, oh, shit, I think I, I think I see what he's doing. I think I see where he's going. And it's amazing. And then we, we uh, I know me and Steve were a bit worried about the reception that the team in, in, in Montreal would, you know, have about the, the project and the mix. And uh, we didn't, we wanted to know, but we didn't want to know at the same time because we, you know, we wanted to just say, okay, well, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. And at, at some point, I think uh, the creative director uh, heard it and just poked Steve and said, this is, this is night and day. We're loving what we're hearing. And I was like, oh, let's, let's bring Mike in a little bit farther. Uh, Mike, you were tasked with making things that just don't exist in the world. Probably. Well, hopefully, um, you know, like monsters and alien beings and creating entire alien wor worlds out there. Like, how do you approach creating, you know, giving a voice and a personality to things that don't exist? Uh, how do you control the, the scale of that work and how do you make it all kind of come together? I mean, it's not easy. Yeah, we were trying to make sounds that were both like completely foreign and completely alien, but also organic and sounded natural. And so you have to find this balance of things that people are going to maybe recognize as a real creature or like a plausibly real creature but it can't sound exactly like anything that actually exists and so um i mean honestly starting off you just have to find good assets if you don't start off with like picking the right sounds to mix together it's not really going to work together um and so lots of it was just like thinking about all the different kinds of weird animals you can have and altering them and layering them and filtering them and adding stuff together and also like having a good visual reference is always helpful. I always try to like stick specifically if we have a visual, if it's not ambiences. Um, but yeah, no, it's hard sometimes. Like uh, I think there's the, one of the main um, antagonists in the game is this basically shimmering, floating ephemeral blob. <laughs> and so I think we kind of like waited, I think we we're um, putting off actually getting to it for a while because it was, it's kind of like a UI sound where it's so open to interpretation, you know, like you don't, there's nothing really in the real world that looks like that or acts like that. I mean, that specific sound, we had a lot of different layers. There's like a high shimmery layer. There's like a mid kind of like growly, clicky kind of layer. And there was like a rumbly low layer that we kind of dynamically changed throughout the game, depending on what was happening. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I guess for me, I also, I try to use plugins more thoughtfully and try not to just jam a whole bunch on top of each other because I feel like there's a tendency sometimes just to like more is better, but I don't think it, that's really the case, especially if you're trying to go for something that's sounds grounded and sounds uh, in the real world. Um, but yeah, I guess in terms of scope, I don't know. We just, 
uh, the way we worked is kind of each of us sound designers would pick a level and we would do everything in that level. And so um, you can kind of know exactly what is what needs to be there and to fill it up. But yeah, I don't know. Honestly, at this point, a lot of it is intuition. Ah, oh, welcome, welcome, welcome. You, lucky traveler, have arrived at the Elasteria Symporium, private collection of Tanalir Tivan, the premier, premier, premier exhibit of wonders in the galaxy. And also just always not being afraid to experiment, try and pick stuff that you wouldn't think that would work or things that are just completely outside of like the sound of a creature or the sound of like um, what, you, what you're specifically doing. And so a lot of times it's kind of like, I feel like a lot of my job sometimes is just being some kind of thesaurus where I'm just like trying to look through the library and think of different creatures that could sound like that or like, cause yeah, like that, that creature, the Magus that I was talking about before, I think it had like uh, welding sounds in it and it had like weird, all different kinds of stuff. And so um, it's good. Just always try and experiment just try to find that balance between you always want some, a sound to stick out and be unique and be noticeable and have its own certain flavor but not too much so that it distracts from what's happening in the game and what's happening visually. And so that's kind of like always the balance you're trying to find. Looks like you've got a lot of parts here. Just about everything. Mostly. Refurbished, of course. Hard to get new equipment since the war. Well... You looking for something particular? I wonder if you have something I could use to remove, uh... Nova Core Disabler. Seven, eight, twelve series. If you're doing it right, no one's really going to notice. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know. It's um, it was a, it was a big job, and I think, I think we did a pretty good job doing making each kind of area sound different and yet completely foreign. So, uh, hats off to the whole team because it's a much a team effort for sure. And we we were lucky in that we got to work with. Um local well local they're actually worldwide but uh, the fabric des monstres which is a company started by a guy here in montreal sebastien croto and it's now something that spans worldwide and they do sounds for like i mean they're big stuff like you you hear them doing zombies and it's like these guys should be doing it for hollywood like it's that good hey look what we've got coming they're also being death metal singers they can kind of do stuff with their voice or they're they're able to kind of push their voice into areas that normal actors might not want to because you know if the guy's got a commercial later in the afternoon he doesn't want to be screaming like for four hours you know what i mean so these guys are like, oh, no, I do that, like, you know, in my sleep when I wake up. That's my normal voice. You know, you're like, oh, great. Okay. Whatever. Here it comes. Finally. I worked with Sebastien for roughly a year just designing. Um, all the aliens that you meet in nowhere, it's it's not like just uh, somebody making up stuff. There, there's actually a language for each race that Sebastian created. Feels like I got something stuck in my throat. You want something to wash it down? Uh, now that you mention it, I am a little parched. What's good here? Whatever you get, and that's what I'll have. He would take the script and literally translate it all into the alien language he had made up and then he would work with each person who was doing it and make sure and for the creatures they would we would bring guys in who would give us source sounds that then we would pass on to the sound designers and be like all right this is what we tried for this creature now see if you can take it and, and blend it in hopefully it can help you you know no honestly speaking yeah speaking about good source material i was gonna say those guys like the crazy stuff that they could come up with, the vocalizations, the weird things. You don't have to do a lot to it to make it sound completely non-human. And so like they, that was such a help for sure. Name. Guardians of the Galaxy. Never heard of you. Well, you do live on a mud ball in the middle of nowhere. What's that? What he means is you will have. We're huge in the Kree system. What's in the box? A rare creature, last of his kind, and all around swell guy. Looks like a bush. It is a tree. I am Groot. A 
talking tree. That's new. And in the sessions, I would always say to the guys right at the end before they'd leave, I'm like, okay, just give me two minutes of wild. Like, just do whatever ridiculous sounds you like to do. And then I would export those and put them on the network for the guys saying, you know, you need sounds for your ambient jungles and your maps or whatever. Go look in here. There's tons of wild little creature sounds that you can use. And it's funny, like right near the end, there's a scene, uh, there's a cut scene when they're leaving um, Lady Hellbender's castle. And um, it's you've seen it in the cut scenes. It's the one where Peter's kissing the tentacle and he's like, you know, yeah, I'll call you. I'll call you. And, and I always felt like I wanted to hear something from the creature, you know, because otherwise it feels a bit static. It's like, you know, the tentacles moving and you know that there's a dynamic between the two, but it's only Peter talking and it always bugged me. No, no, of course I will. I'll call you. I'll call you. You guys were supposed to wait for me. You took too long. I was establishing an alibi. You were flirting with a Signarfian beast handler who confirmed that Groot is definitely probably being kept in the new additions pen. Which is where exactly? Well, we didn't quite get that far. And I finally found some time. Like, literally, this is probably like the game shipped in October, and I think I was bugging JS for this, like, end of September. You know, like, it's always the fun where, like, he's he's dealing with, like, real issues, like, where, you know, the hard programmers are like, okay, we're getting, like, you know, crashes and performance issues, and there's too much sound, and I'm like... Hey JS, I need this alien to go when you know Peter does this, and it's really important. And he's just looking at me like, like. Luckily, I have the safety of Zoom because in person he would grab me by the throat and he'd be like, "You see what I have to deal with back here?" And I'm like, "But it's really important." The creature makes a funny sound, but you know what? Like to his credit, he got it in. But I went looking and all those wild sounds, and believe it or not, I believe it's a sound by. Uh, uh, what's her name? Alisa, the singer from Arch Enemy. She's amazing. And she came in, she's from Montreal and did some stuff. And I went in and it just happened in her wild stuff. She had this great sound of her like gargling water and doing a high pitched sound. And I was like, that sounds like the creature. And I grabbed it. And again, it's a stupid thing, but by having all this source material that you could just go in and sift through, you know, like Mike said, it was very helpful. Very, especially when you're dealing with stuff like this, you know? You know, we talked a little bit about Nowhere, um, and I really love to wander around that location. And you talked a little bit about the voices, but, you know, tell me a little bit about the Lipless Bar. I, I know you talked about the death metal singers. I think they were probably a big chunk of that. They were a big chunk of the, the alien life. So the Lipless Bar, funny enough, um, that scene, and, and JS was probably around because I think we were like really small staff going back in pre-production, but that scene has been around um, since pre-production. And it's funny, one of the animators who he didn't finish the project with us, but he does podcasts. And I watched one with the cinematics director and, and he was actually like the cinematics director was showing him like all of this from here to here. That's all the stuff we shot with you back in like 2017. And he's like, really? And it really is like, we shot stuff in like a temp mocap stage and believe it or not, like um, again, a credit to our, our creative director who really always likes to push and, and, you know, in a good way, he wants to give the most to the player. And he was like, we got to bring that character back. And, and like the cinematics director is like, look, you know, time resources, like there's, you know, at, at one point reality does kick in and there's only so many hours in the day, but credit to the cinematics team. They found a way to repurpose a lot of the data. Storm ride together. One more time. Here we go. You, uh, you to sing a song. Till the end, gotta finish the fight. Cause this stone gonna rage till the end of the night. Come on, Lita! Together! Rolling like a like storm. storm. 
JS, you can tell me, did we ADR a lot of that stuff? Because a lot, no, eh? some of it was rough. The audio was rough. But again, when it's hidden in a bar with all the sound, like you don't really hear it. But we had uh, one of the boys uh, cleaned up the VO for Lipless. It's all, it's all his original stuff. So his acting is all the initial takes from 2017, way back with the room tone and the ventilation sound. And uh, the only thing that we picked up was Star Lord when when they're all laughing together amongst themselves. There's a lot of leakage between their microphones and stuff, so we we cut out some of the uh, of Star Lord's leaking in Lipless, but we had Star Lord re-record ADR some of his laughs. But that's it. I think it was like 18 lines that were picked up out of like 140. So it was uh, surprising that it it actually like sounded okay. Yeah. Together till the end, now we look to the sky. Lightning strikes twice, now we toss through the fly. Same with baby Driving through the pouring rain. Ride the song. Yeah. Once it made it in, I'll be honest, I've sat here. I almost kept putting it off because I didn't want to deal with it because I'm like, what am I doing musically? And I and I had like something in the original where um, it was similar, but it, it wasn't the same. Like we never had like an actual score to it. And I think it was literally like I was sitting here on a Friday night, probably late. I came downstairs and then went, realized I looked at the clock and I think it was 2.30 because I got an idea and I just lost. I started researching westerns because i'm like this is basically a western it's like every you know the hero in the bar and then the click click and the camera and the guns here and then it just dawned on me i was like why don't we try this as a western so i think i grabbed some temp music and now i was like okay step one let's see if richard laughs at me and let's see what he thinks and again credit to richard every time i come to richard with a crazy id he's like i love it let's do it you know and i gave him sort of a temp you know, I think it was a track from Once Upon a Time in Mexico or something. It was just to get the flavor and see if it worked. And I said, do you think you can do something with this? And sure enough, by Monday, I had, you know, this this great sort of temp track of the, the Mexican music in the bar. What the? I don't know what's going on here, but I thought we was friends, eh, Or did you forget about me? And as soon as, like, I loved it, but I was like, is the team going to go for it? Because it's a little off the wall. I mean, one minute you have this sort of weird alien techno music in the bar, and then it's like, zoop, zoop, and it stops, and click, click, and you go from that to this sort of flamenco Spanish guitar. I know that's blonde mop anywhere. When I showed it to the team, they just five seconds of that first chord, everybody was like laughing with like tears coming out of their eyes. So I'm like, I mean, you can tell me you don't want me to do it, but I'm going to argue based on your reaction that it looked like it worked. And, uh, and it did. And it went in and it was, again, it was a little funny to, to put it together because it's all branching dialogue. So how do you seam stuff together? But I think we just found a very simplistic simplistic approach to how we put it in and it worked. And again, like I said, you know, uh, it's the same when I, for the huddle, like at one point we felt, you know, the huddle speech, like we, we really felt we were losing a lot of the sort of intensity, like you're going from combat and then it's, it's just sound effects and drone. So we were like, how can we, how can we improve this? And I turned to Rich and I said, you know, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? Like just something that's kind of, you know, like an anthem of something. And he came back with that little huddle track, um, which I fell in love with. I thought it was great. It really, it kind of helped pick up the pace. Guys, huddle up! Yes! Celebrate this moment, my friends! Victory shall soon be ours! 
We shall carve our name in the history books, Peter Quill, and it will not be spelled incorrectly. And even his little, uh, he had these uh, chants of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And at one point we're like, oh, we have no sound when the huddle icon appears on the screen. And I'm like, oh, why don't we go with the whoa, 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 you know? And I knew like it might clash sometimes with the tone, but I was like, yeah, but it's it's going to be rare. And it's it's an iconic sound that like you, you already associate with it, the huddle. So having it play when it when it appears, I think would work well. And the whole thing came together. And again, like I said, it's just, I don't know. It's just every time we seem to go digging for gold, we found gold, you know? It's quite interesting. Both of those tracks, um, they're quite subtle, but the, the Mexican bar theme for the Lipless fight, even though it's all sort of nine string guitars and hand claps and things like that, it actually plays the Guardian's main theme just in a slightly different setting. And the same with the, the Huddle track. Um, even though it's not particularly melodic, the actual guitar chords are exactly the same as the main theme. So it's all completely tied in. So that takes me to what is probably my last question. It's for all of you one at a time. You guys can take it in whatever order you want to, but describe your favorite scene, describe your favorite element about guardians. What's the thing that still makes you smile while you're, you're working through that game where you see it. I think honestly, for me, the, the, the writing and the acting, um, is, is fantastic. And, and, like even four or five years into the production, I'm hearing these jokes, these lines for like the, you know, 300th time and, and still find myself giggling. And uh, one of the scenes, uh, I think I watched it before. Uh, it's right when you get to Temple Ship, Rocket asks Star-Lord if he can froth and if he can twitch. And Star-Lord says, yeah, I can froth. I'm pretty twitchy. And then he says, on my, I'm, on my count, uh, you, you froth and you twitch. Can you froth? I can froth. Can you twitch? Yeah, I'm pretty twitchy. All right. On my cue, you drop, froth, and twitch. While they're all distracted, we take off down one of them side halls. What about me? You, well, you know, you uh, take one for the team. Whenever I watch that, giggle all the time. Every time. What happens after? Well, you take one for the team. You take one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to echo exactly what JS said, because I definitely, I don't think any of our work would have come to anything if the writing hadn't been so spot on. And if the actors hadn't had the kind of chemistry that they had, I feel like we could have done as much as we wanted, but I really don't think the project would have worked out. And so I really giant kudos to them, but I guess I'll pick two uh if i can uh the first one which i think was there from like a long time ago too is the cut scene where um it's at the end of q zone and they shoot the last thing and they find the stone and then the magus exits the stone i don't know there's just really good mocap of them like crawling all over each other and also i, I don't know just like watching people play that <laughs> in stream is so fun because the first time they see that it's a really strange sight no one knows what to make of it <laughs> and then yeah uh, i uh I just, I, I don't know. I love that scene. And then also just to speak to like the writing and stuff, the like more intimate scenes, like the scene with uh, uh, Drax and Star-Lord looking out in nowhere. Is everything all right? You believe that this is the edge of the universe, Peter Quill? Well, yeah, because it is. I just feel like there's a surprising emotional depth to the game that I wasn't expecting you know i knew that they had to hit the comedy but there's a very few games where i'm ever actually like emotionally invested in the characters and i can't tell if i'm just biased because <laughs> i worked on this one like i can think of like last of us was like the last time that i was actually just like ah, i actually cared what was happening to them you know and i feel like um it's just a testament to the writing that we were able to have such wide array of emotions and that that moment for sure i was uh, it was touching I'd like to echo definitely the writing because um, one of my favourite lines that Rocket says, um, and I'm not going to give any spoilers away in case people haven't a chance to check the game out yet, but there's a, one of the female characters who's a sort of teenager. She's sort of being quite, um, quite angry at one point, and Rocket goes, This is why I don't have kids. And it just cracks me up every <laughs> single time. Um, and actually, to, to echo what Mike said, in terms of emotion in the game, I mean, there, there are a lot of games that, whether they're afraid to go there or they just don't know how to do it. Um, and that particular scene that Mike mentioned, which is when uh, Drax and Star-Lord are having quite a deep conversation, that was an absolute joy for me to score because 
and I'm pretty sure the reviewer who 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 shed a tear is probably at that moment, or, or maybe one other that I can think of in the game. But to have such great writing and such great acting makes my job really easy. Um, but I would totally emotionally invested in all these these um, these quite deep scenes. So that's I think that's a testament both to the writing, the directing, and especially the acting to uh, to deliver an experience like that. And it was an absolute joy for me as a composer. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make it unanimous. This this you know none of this game works without the writing and without uh, the direction and all that. So I will say that for me, the more intimate moments of you know the theme of grief and loss where we have Drax and Star Lord um, at the rift, I find it like you know it's probably one of the more powerful moments. And anytime you can do something that literally you know emotionally affects somebody, I think that's you know that's the reason why we do what we do right we're trying to elicit emotion and create and i mean even you know eidos montreal's sort of mantra is crafting emotions so it's it's you know it's the highest compliment of what we can do and and when you're given those opportunities to do it and you see that you have the writing and you have the acting so you're like you know everything's in place and now i can just support this like rich did and i knew that that those moments were going to be you know, powerful. And uh, I'm glad people are reacting to it. But I knew like, I always knew, you know, once you saw the writing and you saw the acting, you're like, oh, this has the potential to really be a memorable moment. And then once we put Rich's score underneath it, I was like, there it is. That's what we were hoping for, you know. But yeah, it's like I said, it doesn't happen without all of those other elements, you know, hitting the bullseye exactly where they are. Bullseye hit. You know, I, again, the, the teamwork shows and, and the cooperation amongst the, the, the people here and the, the larger teams really show in the final product. And I'm really having a good time playing it. So thanks for a great game, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for everyone here for helping us make it. For those who haven't played it, Guardians of the Galaxy is available on your favorite platform and you can hear it in Atmos now on Xbox and on PC. Thank you again, Andy. And thank you once again to the folks at Eidos Montreal. If you haven't played Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy yet, it is available on the platform of your choice right now. If you like this episode, we'll be back again for another in-depth discussion about another groundbreaking video game, along with more overall gaming content in upcoming episodes, as well as our usual traditional uh, movies and television content. So if you haven't already, be sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in the show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thank you for joining us. This has been Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines, and our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>